happy Hunger Games and may the odds be ever in your favor. This is Paideia and I'm Cassie Michael and today we'll be diving into chapter 11 of the Hunger Games. Before I jump into discussing the chapter, I have to say that Black Lives Matter. Uh, There are so many injustices in our world, and one of them is the systemic and institutionalized inequalities and racial ideologies that have been produced in our country that disadvantage black and indigenous people of color. Black Lives Matter and my heart hurts for George Floyd, his family, and all the other black men, women, children who have been killed by police brutality, but it wasn't caught on film. You know, this enough is enough. This needs to end. Um, and to all those protesting, um, rioting, you know, I stand with you all and I hope you all stay safe and I thank you for your bravery and your courage. Um, I myself am committed to being anti-racist and that starts with me. So right now I'm reading, I'm learning, I'm listening to podcasts and trying to reflect on my own ideology and why I have the beliefs that I have. I'm examining my thoughts and my actions um, to notice the racism within myself and to work to overcome that and change my thoughts, to change my schema, to unlearn the way I've been racialized in this society. Um, And I'm doing what I can to support And part of that is using any platforms I have and not being silent. So, once again, Black Lives Matter. Now, no episode is complete without a spoiler warning. So, requisite spoiler warning, I may spoil... The Hunger Games, Catching Fire, Mockingjay, perhaps the Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. Before jumping into chapter 11, um, one thing I've been reflecting about and thinking about is the stories I read and hold dear to me. A lot of what's on my bookshelf and what I've read is by white authors and a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of white men. Um, A few years ago, I started to be more intentional about what I read to try to diversify my reading. 
because I took the Intercultural Development Index and I did not score where I wanted to and one thing that was recommended to raise my development of cultural competence was to read diverse authors or view diverse art. So I've begun to do that um, starting a few years ago. Um, some great books I've read have been I Am Malala, Becoming by Michelle Obama, Hidden Figures, The Hate You Give, um, and then a lot of what I've read for um, education um, and for furthering my career has been around the issue of equity, um, dealing with creating justice. Um, some of them have been by authors of color, some of them have not, and have been by experts who are committed to anti-racism and committed to, like, social justice. So going forward with the podcast, I will try to be more intentional about the stories um, I present and read or talk about on the podcast to try to include more diverse stories and more diverse narratives. I still think that the stories I've chosen to read have value and they make an important commentary on society, especially the Hunger Games, and I think they're still very worth reading. But so are the stories written by authors of color, and those stories are just as valuable. I think all stories are valuable, and all stories have the power to move us to empathy, call us to action, to help us learn and change our lives. The reason to be more intentional about reading diverse literature and di viewing diverse films and art is because these stories aren't published as much by publishers. You know, publishers, they publish what they think is going to sell. And that's a lot of stories written by white men. Um, so by intentionally seeking out more diverse books, I opened my mind to new perspectives and I helped tell publishers that people will read stories written by people of color. Um, and opening yourself up to new perspectives, learning about different ways of life, it's really important to help you develop autonomy. If all you know is what you've been exposed to, and if it's all one way of life, that inhibits your autonomy, at least according to um, Brickhouse, Brighthouse. I can't remember the author of the book, um, but I read it for a class, and that was his argument. And his argument and the argument of other philosophers is that autonomy is the key to a happy life. Autonomy may be the key to a flourishing life. So I challenge all of you to read diverse books, listen to diverse podcasts. Um, I 
recently started listening to some new podcasts to also try to diversify the podcasts I listen to. Because right now the podcasts I listen to are definitely white spaces. Um, My favorite one that I recently started listening to is Code Switch. It's a podcast by NPR, and it's having conversations about race and it's produced and made by a multi-racial team Um, and I am really enjoying that podcast so you should check it out now on to the Hunger Games (laughs) finally you might be thinking so what happens in chapter 11 of the Hunger Games Well, I'm so glad you asked, because I am going to tell you. So, as a reminder, we left Chapter 10 with Katniss coming up into the arena. She's on, like, a metal circle, metal ring, and that's where Chapter 11 opens. She must stay on this ring for 60 seconds until a gong sounds, or else the mines will blow her to bits. Um, During these 60 seconds, she describes the cornucopia, a horn packed with life-saving supplies and life-ending weapons, including a bow and arrow. She's a fast runner. She contemplates running to the bow and arrow and getting it, even though this is what Hamish told her not to do. But Hamish doesn't know she's a fast runner, and maybe Hamish will think... Um, would have given her different advice if he knew. Spreading out from the cornucopia, there are items of lesser value. So as Katniss is contemplating her strategy, she spots Peta, and he gives a little shake of his head, and that delays her a few seconds too long, so she has no choice but to get out of there, avoiding the bloodbath that takes place at the cornucopia. She decides to grab a backpack, not knowing the contents, and the boy from District 9 is killed right in front of her, his blood splattering on to her body. He was killed by the girl from District 2, who has a bunch of knives and is throwing them. Katniss runs, a knife is thrown at her, um, but it's caught in the backpack, I believe, and she runs into the woods. She alternates jogging and walking, putting as much distance as she can between her and the other tributes, turning her focus to Hamish's second direction, finding water. As she's doing this, she examines the provisions she got from the cornucopia, and she spots a rabbit so she knows she can set up snares and get food, as she knows food will go fast and be hard to come by in the arena. She sets up some snares, she finds a tree to spend the night in, she climbs up, belts herself in the tree with some wire that was in, with a belt that was in her backpack, and gets into the sleeping bag she found in her backpack. Um, She watches the playing of the anthem and the people who died that day. Eleven people died in the bloodbath, and their faces are all shown in the sky, Um, Another note, when people die in the arena, a cannon sounds. In the middle of the night, she hears some 
branches snapping and someone has lit a fire. She thinks this is stupid. It gives people a signal of their location and she contemplates killing them. When dawn is breaking, she hears a pack, the career pack, coming. They kill the fire starter. Um, and then they're wondering why a cannon hasn't gone off. They're wondering if she's really dead when PETA, of all people, PETA, says that he'll go finish her off. And that's where the chapter ends. So, one thing that Katniss reminds us in this chapter is that as all these events play out, it's being broadcast on TV to all of Panem. These bloody, gruesome murders, essentially, are being broadcast to all of Panem. She's walking and she says she feels isolated, but then she remembers that she's probably on TV at that minute. She's not on TV every minute, but they show her often enough so people know she's alive, uninjured, and on the move. My question about this is, like, is it okay to show death on TV? Um, I guess in the fictional sense, um, I think my answer to the question is different. If it's a movie or if it's a TV show and these are fictional characters, I think it's more okay to show death. Um, I think that, you know, perhaps death shouldn't be as violent or as gruesome as it is in real life, because even the fiction we consume can kind of desensitize us to death, and the fiction we consume can be triggering or activating. It can activate emotions in us. Um, it can activate trauma we've been through or people have been through, um, but death is a part of life and death happens and so art film tv books in some ways art should reflect life and so it should reflect death and include death but i think we could be more intentional intentional and more tasteful about how we portray that death. Now, recently with everything going on, I've been seeing videos circulating social media um, of, you know, George Floyd being murdered by the cop. Um, and I've seen videos of there were also videos of Ahmaud Aubrey circulating social media, and I assume some of these videos also made it on to um, news sites and news programs. This, I think, is very activating for people, and I also saw posts of people of color, friends of mine, um, saying, don't share these videos. We don't want to see these brutal killings of black people. And I didn't want to see it. If I came across the video, 
I couldn't bring myself to watch that. I'm okay talking about it and we need to have a conversation about it, but I don't want to see the videos. Um, that just almost for me, I think takes it too far. Um, I think you can present the news, you can start conversations about police brutality without like showing these videos. I think they can activate trauma and it's just hard to see this brutal um, treatment of these people. And I think also, you know, the news can show um, other deaths, perhaps military, like perhaps when showing military um, coverage, which is what actually inspired the rioting of the Hunger Games, was Suzanne Collins watching war coverage um, and seeing people dying on the screen. Um, you know, we see people from other countries dying. We might also see our own U.S. soldiers dying. I don't know. I don't know if that's respectful to the dead, respectful to their families. I don't know. We shouldn't shy away from talking about death because it's something that's inevitable. Everybody's going to die. And people die for unjust reasons. And in order to change that, we need to talk about it. And we can't shy away from talking about it. But it's also been pointed out, and I've also noticed that we share the brutal killings of black people more than we would share that of white people. Why is that? I don't know. I don't know. Um, I don't know what is best. Um, I don't know how we change the current media practices and I don't know what it does. Does seeing the deaths um, on social media and on TV um, and even in fiction, does it desensitize us to death? Does it desensitize us to violence? Um, and by desensitizing us to that? Does it make us care less? Does it make us empathize less? Does it make us um, not care? And if we're desensitized to violence, to death, are we more likely to act in violence? Um, I don't know. I've also seen all these pictures and news articles of the police tear gassing these peaceful protesters and being violent to all the protesters, um, you know, that were peaceful. Um, and I guess in one way it needs to be shown to help people recognize and realize how brutal the police are and how they act in violence. And I guess seeing it might help people believe it 
but why can't we all just have an ethic of trust? Why can't we believe people when they tell their stories? Why do we have to see it? I'm taken to the Santa Claus movies, of all things, um, where, you know, it talks about that idea of seeing is believing, and when it comes to the North Pole, seeing isn't believing, believing is seeing. So, if you are saying you see the racism, you see the injustices, then you shouldn't need to see the pictures or the videos. You should be able to see it in the stories people tell. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I just imagine what the footage of the Hunger Games on this day would be. Watching 11 people die. Watching a girl get covered in the blood of a young boy and just how gruesome that is. And, you know, these people in the capital and the districts, they have to watch 23 people be killed. Um, Now we could argue about whether or not it's the people committing the actual murder who are responsible for it, or if it's the capital for making them be in the games. I would argue that, oh, it's so tough. Um, I would say ultimately the capital is responsible because they created the games. They are making these kids kill each other. Um, Kind of like what PETA said, these kids are all pieces in their games. So ultimately they create the situation they're responsible um, the capital is kind of like Hitler being responsible for all the deaths in the Holocaust, even though he might not have like physically killed them. He gave the orders to it was his policies and his um, actions that led to the death of so many. I don't know. I guess I don't know. Um, but that's one question that this chapter brought up for me and then the other thing I wonder is just about PETA like what's he doing why did he shake his head no or perceive to at Katniss when he didn't follow Hamish's advice was this something he planned with Hamish um You know, Katniss wonders as she's walking if he's dead, and she realizes that she would be sad if he died. Um, And she's having all these conflicting emotions about PETA. Um, She tells herself that if she doesn't win, it will be best for Prim and her mom if PETA wins, because they'll get more food with Parcel Day. Um, And that's true. The winning district does get um, shipments of food and extra celebrations. If a tribute from your district wins, it's like your district wins. President Snow talks about this in The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes, about um, how this was done to have the districts buy into the Hunger Games and invest in the Hunger Games. It was President Snow's idea. Um, 
so in that way she's right but um in her complex feelings i think she's starting to care about pita um my next question you know i'm always just so shocked at pita that he joined the career pack and that he's with the career tributes that doesn't seem like pita um and then in this chapter at the end he says he's gonna go off to finish um he says we're wasting time i'll go finish her and let's move on he's saying he's gonna go and finish killing a girl what that doesn't sound like pita um i wonder about his motives um I know from reading the story that he did all of this to protect Katniss um, and to, I don't know how this protects Katniss, but that's what his motives were. And in a way, I think back to that conversation on the roof. Is him joining the career tributes, is that in some way him not being a piece in the Hunger Games. No one would expect him to join the career tributes. Someone from District 12 with the careers, pretty unlikely. So maybe it is his way of rebellion, of defying expectations. I don't know. I'm interested to learn more about his... Um, time in the games. Katniss is also kind of shocked by this revelation that PETA has joined the career pack. I almost fall out of the tree. The voice belongs to PETA. That just reads shock to me. Um, yeah. Another thing that um, I want to talk about is how even in Panem, even while essentially we have the districts versus the capital as the two major classes, within the districts, it seems like there's still a class hierarchy. The townspeople or the merchants have a little bit more quality of life than, you know, the coal miners in District 12. They have a little bit more food um, while they still experience um, some hardship and while they still have to participate in the reaping, they don't need tesserae, so they have less entries. Um, and what I've noticed is, you know, Katniss has olive skin, um, so she's not white. She has tanner, a little bit darker skin, but she's also, like, not black. Um, and, you know, the people, the merchants, um, are all seemingly more, like, blonde hair, blue-dyed, like, white, almost Aryan-skinned. So there's still that little element of, you know, privilege of race, a little bit. I don't know if that's intentional, and I don't know if all the merchants are, like, more white, or if that's just my perception of the books. 
Um, and I don't know if it's like that in all the districts, but that's one thing I noticed. I also don't know if all the people in the capital are white. Um, I read them that way, um, but they're not that way in the movie. Um, so, I don't know. It's interesting to think about how in this dystopian world, it's interesting to think about if race still plays a role in class and in, you know, social standing and in quality of life. Um, the tributes from District 11 are dark-skinned. They're black. Um, so, I don't know. And then, like, some of the wealthier districts um, seem to be more light-skinned, um, at least from my perception and my reading. I haven't paid close attention to the descriptions of them, um, but maybe it's worth going back through and looking at that and looking at what role race still plays in um, this society. Um, and I wonder if in this dystopian society, if it's one that has overcome racism. It's also worth wondering what makes the capital justify, or how does the capital justify their tyranny? How do they justify um, their power? Because, uh, I don't know, how do they justify it? Because um, race is a social construct, right? And it was created um, to justify the treatment of slaves and to make class differentiations between the white indentured servants and the black slaves um, in colonial America. Um, at least that is one um, example I heard on a podcast I was listening to recently. Um, so, I don't know. It's worth paying attention to, I think, going forward. Um, yeah. So, I think that is... Hmm. We, of course, see the theme of fear in this book or in this chapter, and in general in the book, all the general feel I've been feeling condenses into an immediate fear of this girl, this predator who might kill me in seconds. Adrenaline shoots through me, and I sling the pack over one shoulder and run full speed for the woods. I can hear the blade whistling toward me and reflexively hike the pack up to protect my head. The blade lodges in the pack, both straps on my shoulders now, I make for the trees. Somehow, I know the girl will not pursue me, that she'll be drawn back into the cornucopia before all the good stuff is gone. A grin crosses my face. 
thanks for the knife, I think. So, there's obviously fear. There's the theme of hesitation. Um, I see that theme at the beginning. Um, when Katniss is, is pausing, she's thinking through her strategy. Um, I hear his instructions in my head. Just clear up. Put as much distance as you can between yourselves and the others and find a source of water. But it's tempting, so tempting, when I see the bounty waiting there before me, and I know that if I don't get it, someone else will, that the career tributes who survived the bloodbath will divide up most of these life-sustaining spoils. Something catches my eye. There, resting on a mound of blanket rolls, is a silver sheath of arrows and a bow, already strung, just waiting to be engaged. That's mine, I think. It's meant for me. I'm fast. I can sprint faster than any of the girls in our school, although a couple can beat me in distance races. But this 40-yard length, this is what I am built for. I know I can get it. I know I can reach it first. But then the question is, how quickly can I get out of there? By the time I've scrambled up the packs and grabbed the weapons, others will have reached the horn, and one or two I might be able to pick off. But say there's a dozen. At that close range, they could take me down with the spears and the clubs, or their own powerful fists. Still, I won't be the only target. I'm betting many of the other tributes would pass up a smaller girl, even one who scored an 11 in training to take out their more fierce adversaries. Hamish has never seen me run. Maybe if he had, he'd tell me to go for it. Get the weapon, since that's the very weapon that might be my salvation. And I only see one bow in that whole pile. I know the minute must almost be up, and... We'll have to decide what my strategy will be, and I find myself positioning my feet to run, not away into the surrounding forest, but toward the pile, toward the bow, when suddenly I notice Peta. He's about five tributes to my right, quite a fair distance. Still, I can tell he's looking at me, and I think he might be shaking his head, but the sun's in my eyes, and while I'm puzzling over it, the gong rings out, and I've missed it. I've missed my chance, because those extra couple of seconds I've lost by not being ready are enough to change my mind about going in. So the most recent episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text talks about hesit talks about hesitation and about how it can be a positive thing, um, as you can take the chance to think and you can take the chance to think and still act or take the chance to think and do something else um and this moment of hesitation about whether or not to follow Hamish's advice the moment of hesitation that Peta gives Katniss by shaking his head um it changes how things play out in the arena for Katniss I wonder what would have happened if she went for the bow. Would she have survived the bloodbath? We'll never know. But 
I think Peter knows that Hamish is experienced and he knows what he's doing. So I think Peter gave Katniss that hesitation as a way to protect her and make sure she got out of there and stayed alive. Now, how did he join the careers if he didn't go to the bloodbath? How did he survive the bloodbath? Um, I don't know. But um, he definitely was, in my mind, protecting Katniss with that hesitation. Because it allowed her to get away and not engage in the bloodbath, which we don't know that she could have survived. Um, also, the games are kind of designed for hesitation. You can't just pop up into the arena and go. There's that mandatory 60 seconds. That's how long we're required to stand on our metal circles before the sound of a gong releases us. Step off before the minute is up and the landmines blow your legs off. 60 seconds to take in the ring of tributes, all equidistant from the cornucopia. I wonder why there's that built-in hesitation to the Hunger Games. What advantage does that give the capital? Um, is it a mind game? A trick of manipulation on the tributes? In a way, I think it kind of is. That 60 seconds forces them to take in the cornucopia, to take in their new environment. That 60 seconds of hesitation can change people's strategies like it almost changed Katniss's. Instead of listening to mentors and fleeing, it could, that 60 seconds taking in the bounty could draw people in to the bloodbath. And for many reasons, I think that's what the capital wants. On the level of entertainment, they want a good fight for the audience, for the capital audience, that is. Um, they also um, need to have 23 people die in the Hunger Games because that's how it's set up. And drawing people into a fight ensures more deaths. Although I don't know if it's an advantage or disadvantage to the capital to have the games be shorter or more prolonged. They definitely have the power to decide how long the games are and can control the length of the games. And sometimes they're longer, sometimes they're shorter. I guess having a longer games ensures almost more punishment on the people in the districts. They have to endure the torture of watching their children die for longer. Um, so maybe that's an advantage to the capital. Other years, though, if there's something just wrong or something they don't like about the tributes, um, or perhaps there's tributes talking of rebellion, it might be an advantage to have a shorter games. It'll be interesting to compare what the game makers do in these games and how they control the length of the games to um, the games in Catching Fire. Um, 
that will be an interesting thing to think about. Hesitation, I think, can in some ways benefit and serve us, but in some ways it can be our detriment. With hesitation, sometimes there's doubt, and sometimes that doubt is good, and sometimes that doubt um, can be manipulative and can lead us to do what we what is not in our best interest um and of course i think hesitation is more complex than um how i'm making it seem and it can be a lot of different things i think that is all there's also in a sense, um, a theme of isolation. Once Katniss is gone, she feels that sense of, um, isolation. Um, and I think that's in a way comforting to her. Um, I think she's kind of introverted, you know, she doesn't have many friends except for Madge um, because they're both kind of quieter. She's not as good at like talking to the people of the capital or being in public as PETA is. So I think that isolation is kind of comforting. Um, yes. One last like interesting idea from this chapter um, that I want to talk about is this line. Stupid people are dangerous, and this one probably doesn't have much in the way of weapons. Well, I've got this excellent knife. So this line occurs when someone starts a fire. Um... I have to bite my lip not to scream every foul name I know at the fire starter. What are they thinking? A fire lit just at nightfall would have been one thing. Those who battled at the cornucopia with their superior strength and surplus of supplies, they couldn't possibly have been near enough to spot the flames then. But now, when they've probably been combing the woods for hours looking for victims, you might as well have been waving a flag and shouting, Come and get me. And here I am, a stone's throw away from the biggest idiot in the games, shot in a tree, not daring to flee since my general location has just been broadcast to any killer who cares. I mean, I know it's cold out here, and not everybody has a sleeping bag, but then you grit your teeth and stick it out until dawn. I lie smoldering in my bag for the next couple of hours, really thinking that if I can get out of this tree, I won't have the least problem taking out my new neighbor. My instinct has been to flee, not fight, but obviously this person's a hazard. Stupid people are dangerous, and this one probably doesn't have much in the way of weapons, while well, I've got this excellent knife." So, some things I think of is what makes someone stupid? I think 
different people have different perceptions of what is stupid. Um, what's common sense to one person is not necessarily common sense to another person. Um, while Katniss's logic makes sense that the fire will alert potential killers to their location, um, the need for warmth and heat is also valid and is also true. I think Maslow's hierarchy of needs, uh, which is a psychological theory that states that we have um, this hierarchy of needs that must be met. The um, most basic needs that need to be met are physiological needs, the need for shelter, um, for water, um, basic needs that sustain us, heat being one of those. Then we have um, our emotional needs, our needs for safety and feeling safe. Then we have the need for love and belonging. We have the need, need for esteem and our self-esteem and image. And then we have the need for self-actualization or learning. And each level needs to be met. Uh, so, you know, this tributes deed for heat, need for a physiological need wasn't being met. So that impairs the thinking. I don't know. So I think context is important. Um, and I don't know. I think people can make mistakes and people's actions can be dangerous. Um, and a lot of times that can come from ignorance. But I don't know if ignorance is the same as stupidity. Um, ignorance is not knowing. When I think of stupidity, I think it's when you know something's bad, but you do it anyway. Um, I don't really like the word stupid. I don't know. That's just a interesting thing to think. And... I understand why Katniss thinks it, but I also see the perspective of the fire starter. And in a way, Katniss is right. Starting that fire does lead to the fire starter's death by the career pack. Um, so, I don't know. That's about all I have to say about chapter 11. Thank you all so much for listening, and thank you all for all of your support. This has been another episode of Paideia. Thank you all for listening, and join me next time as we dive into Chapter 12 of The Hunger Games.